0: We are keeping democracy alive.
1: Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much.
0: Oh, smokes, dead, you know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian...
1: That is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I
0: speak tonight for the
1: dignity of man.
0: One president said that. Another president, Franklin Roosevelt, said, the real safeguard of democracy is education. Whoa, we're going to talk about education today. Racial segregation in public education was ended 60 years ago with the historic Brown versus Board of Education decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. Or was it? Was racial segregation ended then? In a new book called Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education, our guest today, author Noliwe Rooks, argues that the long history of intent to discriminate by race has been able to creatively leap over this legal hurdle to keep segregation going in America's schools. Our guest argues that we are now experiencing levels of school segregation the country has not seen since the mid-20th century, and that failure to provide a high-quality education to all children has actually become big business and is undercutting our democracy. How can this be? How prevalent are separate and unequal schools in 21st century America? Can anything effectively be done about it? Well, to provide a full understanding of the challenge and how solutions have been skirted, Noliwe Rooks traces a path through pre-Civil War America, the Reconstruction South, and 20th century segregation academies, busing conflicts, and white flight, Rooks reveals that the road to our current situation has been surprisingly consistent. It's been about keeping unequal education one way or another. Among other topics, Cutting School looks at how the trend for corporatization of public schools reproduces unequal, unjust educational opportunity. She argues that this trend is part of the dismantling of public education in America. Noliwe Rooks, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, Noliwe Rooks is the director of American Studies and associate professor of Africana Studies at Cornell University, someplace I never would have gotten in, and was for (laughs) 10 years the associate director of African American Studies at Princeton University Yeah, she's the author of two previous books, White Money, Black Power, and Hair Raising. All right, thanks again for being with us. What was your purpose in writing this book? Why did it need to be written? And if you could, that title, Cutting School.
2: Yeah, uh, so thank you so much. That was a really comprehensive introduction. I really appreciate it. Um, I think as I was hearing about in terms of why I... um, thought that the book was important to be written, um, I, I kept hearing all of these conversations in, um, let's say, 2010, 2012, on campuses where students uh, you know, were using this language of um, education is the civil rights issue of the 21st century,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, and that zip codes should not determine the kind of quality education a student got. And because I was teaching at Princeton at the time <coughs> excuse me, these were students, many of them, not all of them. And there were many students who really didn't have a lot of um, interaction with experience with poor struggling communities or communities of color or, or public schools um, that were providing less than a stellar education. And so I was really just curious and thinking about that moment, what was it exactly that was going on that had all of these you know, white, relatively privileged or of color and very privileged students all of a sudden turning their gaze toward uh, poor, struggling, underfunded school districts? Um, and as I started to unravel that story, I thought it would be all in the present, you know, all about uh, vouchers and um, charter schools, right. the things that we hear about when we hear that about education reform, different kinds of technological innovations. But I kept backing up just a little bit more to contextualize the story, just a little bit more to contextualize the story. And as it turned out, I ended up backing up to Reconstruction when, you know, um, to mm-hmm. the 19th century when public school funding, tax-supported funding, uh, public school funding uh, really became a thing, and a lot of the same issues and players, in terms of philanthropists, business owners, um, uh, were really uh, evidencing a similar kind of interest um, in underfunded schools and black education. And so hmm. that's how you know it ended up going from the 19th century till a few years ago.
0: Yeah, history never leaves us. It's still here. It's so much of it is, is still going on. Things don't get completed and left behind. That's It's just not the case. It, it's, it's painfully obvious that in Trump-era America, racism and white supremacy has come out of the closet, if you will. What seems to have started with President Reagan declaring government and government-imposed solutions to be the enemy, I've heard voices, and this is always kind of shocked me when I first heard this term uh, from the emboldened right calling public education government schools. Government
1: schools.
0: Government schools. I bet most Americans see public schools as being at the very foundation of who we are. But as your book points out, taxpayer-supported schools only came to the South in the late 1860s during Reconstruction, the period following the defeat of the South in the Civil War. And that itself was a short period, 1868, as you uh, define it, through 1877. What happened regarding education for all citizens following that historic blip? Well, first, what happened in that blip, and then what happened to it afterwards?
2: Well, so one of the things about um, uh, the po- post-Civil War period for— for I don't want to assume that everybody spends as much time thinking about Reconstruction as I do. So um, following the Civil War— Federal troops were left in the South in the thirteen slavehold, former slaveholding states, right. um, in order to ensure that the Fourteenth, Fifteenth, and Sixteenth Amendment, the uh, you know freedom, citizenship, and voting, um, were were enacted. That the former slaves would have the protection of the federal government, and. Uh, one of the the two places where Black people really made a lot of progress was in electoral politics.
1: You know, we had oh, governors, yes. uh-huh.
2: mayors, and you know, people being elected left and right because they could vote. Like because they now had the right to vote, um, and there were federal troops protecting it. The other place was uh, the federal government began to send funds southward for the education of. Uh, they couldn't just make it for black people, so it was for southern kids, right? Uh-huh. So that included poor whites. Uh-huh. So at the time, uh, you know, during Reconstruction, you you had a level of educational equality that I, 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 I want to dare say I'm not sure that we've seen since, huh. um, where the numbers of people, white and black, who were poor, where the numbers of poor people, of course, elite, White people, the planner class, the middle class, had always educated their kids in private schools, or they sent them east, or they sent them to Europe. Like so, education for the wealthy was never um, really a question. It was poor people um, who who it just didn't occur to anybody that they needed education (laughs) um, because they were seen as primarily workers. So what happens in Reconstruction is all of this money goes forth, and white people, poor white people, as well as black people, are are you know. gaining literacy and, uh, you know, going into schools like we had never seen before. Um, and so when the troops left, um, when it was decided that the South should, should be able to see to its own affairs again, yes. the two things that Southern govern- governments in the 13 former slaveholding states went after were voting, um, often with different terror campaigns, um, and different tax schemes and education. And they began to dismantle what had existed before. But at this point, you have a lot of white people who are really committed to having their children educated. It's never happened before. Um, and so the effort began to really shift the funding that was for the education of the formerly enslaved, that included the education of the formerly enslaved, from black students to white students so that white students could continue to benefit. Um, from from public education, but you could start backing away from the idea that black students should have it. So, all across the South, people started making it illegal to educate black and white kids in the same way or to use. I mean, some of the mm-hmm. really kind of crazy things are they're sort of like, well, you can't use white tax dollars. Um, the, the tax money that people are paying in for their property taxes, for state taxes. If there are white tax dollars from white people, none of them can be used to educate any black people. If black people want to um, educate themselves, this is the Uh post-reconstruction mindset. They could pay for it. They need to uh, start to collect money um, and pay for or pay an additional tax in order to educate their own.
0: Hmm. So it sounds like the creativity, the ways of getting around the requirement for uh, education and fairness— May have uh, started then, uh, and it certainly continued after the uh, Brown versus Board of Education decision. That's for sure. If you're just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, Bert Cohen here. Uh, we're speaking with Noliwe Rooks. Her new book is Cutting School: Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. It's easy to focus on any and all uh, criticism for racism and segregation of the schools to the south. As you write, decades after the Brown versus Board of Education made such practices illegal, America's northern school system remained overwhelmingly separate and unequal. What are some factors in explaining this? How did this happen and what did it look like? So it wasn't just the South.
2: Yeah, no, no, it was not. It was not the South at all. Um, the, The thing that really broke the back of the segregationists in the South Was the 1964 Civil Rights uh, Act, which which tied federal funds um, or access to federal funds to uh, not having uh, the requirement for segregated schools, so you couldn't get federal money. Uh Johnson decided Uh um, if you were segregating your schools, so the South starts to to integrate as a result because you know they needed the money to exist. Um, but, the, but the North had sort of exempted itself or got it out because Johnson also said, well, if the segregation was not written into law, any places where there was never a legal um, barrier to integration um, are exempted from this order. Ooh. They can continue on. We're only <laughs> dealing with places where, you know, lawmakers had said it is illegal to educate black and white kids in the same way. Um, in the same place. Well, in the North, you didn't have any places sure. that were saying that it was illegal. So for the most part, they were exempted. Um, but it didn't mean that uh, uh, there were there there was high levels of of integration everywhere. Um, in part because you have uh, white flight has begun, yes. so the movement um, that has reversed itself, and now everybody's come back to the city. But at the time. People were moving out into the suburbs and leaving the cities uh, mostly of color, and mostly poor. White right. people were moving out to the suburbs. Right. So just by virtue of housing patterns, you know, it was sort of like, well, we have suburban schools and there are no poor people and there are no black people. So we're not, you know, saying that it is, you, we, don't, we don't want them. They just don't live here. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you had a lot of people saying, a lot of activists kind of like, well, if we're going to integrate, you know, we really do have to figure out a way around this because we are in effect still keeping these separate but equal school districts or separate and unequal
1: school districts
2: where in the urban areas. Um, you, you've left behind, and manufacturing is also leaving oh, yeah. cities, and so you're leaving behind these sort of islands where people do not have the same kinds of opportunity. And then, and then the wealthier folks um, are kind of like, "We'd love to help, but you know, we're out here mm-hmm. in suburbs." So, folks hit upon this, um, of course, like let's let's think about busing. Yes. Well, um, I mean some of the most surprising stuff that that I saw was the resistance to busing in the south in the north yeah. um, was nothing i mean the the South had nothing on the North in terms of the creative ways that um, northern folks, the elite wealthy white people, came up with making sure you were not going to use busing as a way of getting um, disadvantaged kids into wealthy school. Um, so Joe Biden, for example, sponsored a bill making it illegal to put, to use federal funds to buy gas if you were going to put it in buses for the purpose of integrating, um, schools. And you had
0: Joe uh, Biden,
2: Joe Biden. Yep. (laughs) you Democrats, the Democrats were very a- active like oh in my. this whole thing, and it was never it was never that we are against integration. He never said he was against oh integration. My. he was like against using money to put gas in buses in order to get students federal money um on these buses um he He, he that was his bill oh um, so what actually people went after was really the means of ensuring uh-huh, uh-huh. integration without ever saying. We want segregated schools, and we are writing into law um, that that we're going to have school segregation.
0: Wow. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so <laughs> much for Joe. Well, that was a lot. I mean, let's face that it. That was a lot, right? You keep asking me these open-ended questions. <laughs> well, and, and uh, you know, Joe, Joe Biden, uh, you know, he comes from the Democratic Party. And, you know, let's face it, for most of the time the Democratic Party of the South was the racist party. I mean they were. Oh, right. yeah. you know, it yeah. just that's yeah, the yeah. way it was. The Republicans were of Lincoln. Boy, yeah. things have changed a little bit since then. <laughs> uh and of course I remember the, the bussing uh, ugliness. It was it was ugly. Oh man in yeah. Boston. It yes. was you know and it was And kind- it
2: was northern. I like you just yeah. didn't have those same flare ups in the South. In in uh Michigan you had, uh, I believe it was Michigan, you had uh, 200 cl- uh, Klansmen, or 200, a mob of 200 folks, many of whom were in the Klan, um, literally put their bodies in front of um, mm-hmm. some buses and then commenced to throwing lighted sticks of dynamite um, at, at the buses that had school children, black school children on them. Right? Like, we have bombing as a part of Southern right. <laughs> history and racial terror, but you don't think about that in Michigan. Right? like that's it, not <laughs> it's not really a part of the story but around yeah. this issue of busing um, it's it, it it's it really it was a flashpoint in the north
0: oh it was and, and being of the north myself back in the 50s and early 60s I remember seeing you know the the police dogs and the tear gas and the fire hoses thinking what is wrong with those people down there you know yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it, it, you know, let, I've, the more I've uh, aged, the more I realize racism is just part of America. And it's horrible, yeah. but it's everywhere. Uh, there, there are many, many manifestations of racism, of course. There's overt racism, like the Klan cross-burning racist jokes, etc. Then there's more covert racism, like housing discrimination, believing we are post-racial, believing in the bootstrap theory, you know, oh, well, you can just lift yourself up by your bootstraps. In understanding the dominant thinking of many Southern whites after Reconstruction, you suggest it's more useful to oh. focus on those who supported education for all rather than those who were overtly racist. Mm-hmm. And why is that?
2: It's a, I think it's a, um, uh, in terms of really being clear uh, about who is benefiting, um, whose boat is actually rising, well, the rhetoric that changed, really, what the, the way that the rhetoric changed is folks started saying, starting in Reconstruction, this is not a racial issue. We want to have certain forms of education. So in the in the South, um, early on in the 19th century, it was all vocational education. We want everyone to be educated, but there's certain kinds of education right. that are sort of more relevant uh-huh. um, for certain groups. So it's education for everybody, yes. yes. But if you were a farmer... If you were a, um, a black person, um, if you were a working class person, then you needed vocational education. You right. needed the tool education to give you tools that would make you a more efficient laborer. Uh huh. So um, if you were more wealthy, if you were middle class, then you needed a more kind of classical um, heading to college type of education. Um, and and uh, you can almost trace that ideology up to today where we see very different forms of education. It's not, you know, as I said as I began, talking about how the um, a lot of uh, so-called ed reformers, you know, always talking about it's not right that a child's zip code determines their access to education, their quality of education. But what's happening is you, you have very different methods of, of mm-hmm. uh, education for the poor, for the rural whites, for rural Americans generally, for... Um, urban black people for Latinos, where uh, some businesses are saying, so, you know, the kind of education that they need, perhaps we should just focus on, say, virtual education as an example. So it's not vocational education that's giving you certain kinds of skills that, you know, will keep you employed. This is um, why go to school at all. So you have whole companies that from the age of five are marketing their products to the poorest, the most vulnerable students and saying to parents just keep them at home, put them in front of the commute, computer, oh, yeah. let them go through their entire educational experience at home. They don't have to go to school. Well, you know, you, you don't see this with wealthy in wealthy communities. You, you don't have uh, people saying the best is that we don't need teachers at the Lawrencevilles and Choates and, you know, the, the High-end prep school should just go out of business, and let's put our our kids in front of computers mm-hmm. and just let the computers teach them. But wow. we're prescribing very different forms of education, very different yes. ideas about the quality of training that teachers need um, when they're when you're going between poor communities and more wealthy communities. You can you know get away with a few months of of teacher training and go into a poor community and be seen as a legitimate teacher.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I don't think that you could try that in, in the wealthy you know, right. the areas. If you say our teachers have been trained for two months, and now they are coming to high-class, wealthy, coming to teach the children of Bill Gates, I don't <laughs> believe that Bill Gates would actually say that that's a good idea.
0: No, I suppose um, it's it's public education for all, just as long as all know their place, you know? Like, exactly. It's
2: educating people very differently. Yes. So everyone has access to education. And the question that I'm trying to raise is, but what kind? And just saying quality as a kind of vague, because we don't have a shared definition of, of what quality looks like. Well, true. Um, We don't don't know if it's test scores. I mean, people get to jerry-rig their test scores, so what's passing in Mississippi may not be what's passing in New York, may not count in Massachusetts. So you can say, yes, we've all hit these test scores, but, you know, what does that that actually mean? So what my shorthand is just I I want, for the poorest of us, the same kind and form and quality of education that the wealthiest get. That, That for me. Um, is is when we're talking about actual, inequal-
0: uh, actual equality. Yeah, we're not quite there yet, I guess. It's amazing how, <laughs> how slippery it has been. And, after, you know, there's a profit to be made in all this, uh, as yeah. you talk about quite a bit in the book. The schooling provided, for example, by the Tennessee Coal and Iron Corporation <laughs> for the children of its black employees is an early 20th century example of privatized education and education <laughs> keeping people in their places, I think. In what ways... Is IBM's partnership with the New York City Department of Education today's version of such a company school? And how well does it work in providing good education for all? I think I know the answer to that
2: one. (laughs) Well, so what what I talk about in the book is how there's, and and again, this is so localized, everyone may not be quite aware of the agreements across the country that corporations are striking with various school districts where they're offering six-year degrees so the students um, finish high school and basically do basically it's like community college for two years. But at the end of the six years, um, you're guaranteed a job with whatever corporation has partnered with the school, um, and you're guaranteed a uh, man like a forty thousand dollar and up uh, job. Uh-huh. And most of the people going through it are, um, you know, first in their generation to get any college education, um, and and a price point. I mean, a, a paycheck of. Forty thousand and mm-hmm. up um, is a is a um, usually is a higher level than so, what their families are used to. Right, um, and so it seems like this great thing, right? Like, it's, sure. but it's vocational education, um, and it's and it's training students, it maybe giving them skills. And I'm not actually, you know, opposed to it. I Actually, do believe that people, if, if that if that is what works for them, fine. My larger issue is, but why is it it's only for poor people, that you've come up with this idea of training you into a very particular job or to a very particular um, uh, industry. Because the thing that we know as we look uh, look around is that uh, so many of these industries are constantly saying, we're looking for people who can think critically. We're looking for people who can problem solve. Businesses are constantly saying, give me a liberal arts major. I don't need them to be trained just in tech in order for them to be successful. Um, And that's the kind of education that that the middle class and upper middle class have for their children. They can choose to go into tech in the midst of, you know, also learning art and music and, you know, the other things liberal arts education gives you. Um, But for this demographic, uh, IBM and other corporations are saying, you know, what we're going to do is train a workforce. We're training people so that we can, you know, bring in the middle managers right from right from here. And it's unclear how um, transferable. It's just, literally, it is unclear. We don't know uh-huh. uh, how transferable that education is going to be into other industries. But when you're talking about poor people, you know, people are like they should be thrilled. They get a job, right? Um, and again, it's not it's not a thinking of all of our citizens. Um, as equal. It's mm-hmm. thinking of some as more equal than others.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and you know, it is it is profitable. It can be. And you write that, uh, quote, it didn't take long for business interests backed by uh, the federal government to find a way to profit from educational segregation and poverty, end quote. You call this segrenomics, Segronomics. Please explain that term. It's very interesting.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a shorthand um, that's talking about segregation and economics, and one of the things that became a narrative um, that I could see flowing through the book was how these idiosyncratic forms of education, from vocational education to uh, uh, virtual charter schools, they really, they were business models as much as they were educational ideologies. They were hand in hand an intertwining of thinking of business people um, about what they needed as they were with education um, officials, and they only worked in the presence of high levels of racial and economic segregation. Um, you, you, they, they fall apart. The ideas behind them, the things that make them money-making um, entities, and the, uh, the 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 edu the edu business section, edu business. Um, is one of the largest growing segments um, of the economy and um, right now. So if you have an educational product, um, you know, you're, there's whole venture capital firms. All they want to do is fund people with these ideas. Overwhelmingly, what it, where uh, the sweet spot is for these folks coming up with these ideas are what they call in these 90-90-90 schools which are 90% below federal set poverty levels, 90% of the students are of color, and 90% are not meeting um, educational benchmarks. That's where you can make the most money, selling your product. So if you take any of that away, it, it decreases... The corporate bottom line, and so one of the things I'm talking about is how. So one of the things I don't know that we've talked about very much is we've tried to figure out what it's going to take to to achieve some kind of educational integration in the country. Um, is the fact that some people are benefiting financially to the tune of of uh, billions and billions of dollars? The educational funding uh, per year is between five and six hundred billion dollars per year. I and mean, as you privatize more more sections yeah you know, that's a big market. Um, and I, so I'm trying to to have us think about and talk about what it means to have racial and economic segregation benefit the bottom lines of corporation and what it takes then to unravel um, to unravel it.
0: Yeah, and we have all these uh, I've seen you know a lot more advertisements on TV for uh, for-profit colleges and education, and that mm-hmm. you know, it's basically vocational training. And that's, I guess, it it focuses on a particular uh, segment of the economy and our social classes as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah,
2: yes, there are many of these forms that are the growth area. Really, are those who uh, traditional public schools have failed to educate, Um, and so instead of addressing with uh, a, a with proven strategies for how you raise achievement. I mean, really, the biggest strategy for raising achievement systemically that we have seen for system-wide is integration. Um, and once the schools in the South, you know, actually started to, to take seriously the idea of how do we, we dismantle uh, state-sex sanctioned segregation, um, there was a short period of time there, like 10, 12 years, uh, where you started to see educational achievement levels close the gap started to close it worked to educate poor kids kids of color in the same ways that you educated the white and the wealthy and sometimes and often in the same schools with the with the white and the wealthy that that worked and it was working until we started to back away from it and we have now resegregated to levels that rival and in some places exceed what we what we saw in the 1950s and so if we want to start to move forward um, and talk about what do we do in the face of this. Well, we know that's one thing that worked. There's so many of us that don't want it, so that may not actually happen. Uh, but there are other strategies uh, that, that do work. Uh, if you educate poor kids in the same way that we educate the wealthy. So the, the story I often tell is my son, um, uh, when he first he went to private school for a few years, to prep school, and the thing that we were most shocked by, and he was always in the, the AP honors kind of mm-hmm. level, Classes, Um, And we were shocked that the students then who were in a private school in the AP honors track um, are in smaller classes, are getting more individualized attention. We had teachers coming to us telling us about his learning style and what in physics then they were going to do to, you know, help him visualize the the way that, you know, he seemed to be struggling in physics or whatever. So we were sort of like, but this this is a kid who needs this kind of intervention um, less you know, in a way. Um, he, I mean, he's a kid of two college professors. He, we were grateful for it, um, but he, he was going to be okay. Uh-huh. Um, but the fact that we put those kinds of resources into students who um, are not struggling
1: uh-huh.
2: uh, in order to make sure that they don't fail, and it doesn't occur to us when we get to poorer students, we kind of say they need more grit. Um, they need to work harder. They need to, it's always about what they need to do and not what the system needs to do to support them um, into success.
0: Wow. Sort of the bootstraps theory. Just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Mm. You and your family should just work harder. Burn the midnight oil. I tell you, they were not in the the prep school talking about you just need to work harder and burn the midnight oil.
0: No, no. Oh, that is, that is frustrating. It's, it's uncomfortable (laughs) to hear, but it's obviously it's, it's true. And you argue that, uh, and I I remember this well, uh, Reagan's A Nation at Risk and Mm -hmm. Bush's No Child Left Behind, which, by the way, had the support of Ted Kennedy, uh, each in their own way widened the rift between educational haves and have-nots. How so?
2: Well, so uh, the line from Reagan through Obama, actually, um, and because mm-hmm. I don't, one of the things I make clear is around these educational policies, it's not a Republican or a Democratic issue. It's a mm-hmm. um, how privileged are you, how close are you to the to the center of power, if it's financial or political power. The closer you are to the heart of those things, the more you tend to support these kinds of efforts. Um, and so there's this line from. Uh, Reagan through President Obama, well, I mean through President Trump, of course, um, where uh, from a nation at risk, it's the first time, the first sort of federal level report that we have that's saying, you know, we need to stop putting all of this effort and interest into integration and social issues because those issues and that money – is harming the entire system of education in our country. And I think the famous line from that is that we, were, if, a, if a foreign nation did something to have our achievement levels in education look like this, we would consider it an act of war. Um, and they were talking about the levels of literacy and blah, 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 blah. And so this is a bunch of business leaders and political leaders. So they have a bunch of businessmen on the, on the committee that, that are making this decision. And, of course, what they decide is we need to have business much more intimately involved in yes. thinking about what happens in education. And then you have, like, No Child Left Behind, which spawned this huge increase Um, in testing, just the idea of testing, the amount of money available for testing. It was just that we're going to test everybody to within an inch of their life because this is one of the things that business leaders were saying needed to happen. Um, You know, they couldn't find workers who were at certain levels of competence. Therefore, there needed to be more testing in the schools so that the workforce um, would look the way that they wanted it to look. Um, And as I said, it goes through... uh, you know, President Obama, who made sure. a lot of those ideas that were not federal policy, he made them into federal policy. Hmm. Um, so, well, I, uh, wealthy I, people just sort of think have certain ideas, or elite people, you know, have certain ideas about what works best. Um, it doesn't have to be based on uh, data. You know, that actually shows these are educational. Because once you, the difference between what a business wants and what uh, a quality education looks like may not be the same. But if we are constantly erring on the side of making sure that business is happy, um, then we're fundamentally altering what many of us think of as the purpose of public education.
0: That is a very good point, I think. Very good point. Wow. Uh, We're talking with uh, uh, Noliwe Roots, Rooks rather, Rooks, sorry about that. Focus on the first name, mess up the last name. The new book is called Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. Fascinating stuff. When you let business, you know, dictate, it doesn't serve the same needs as actual education. You know, we want people, I, I mean, I happen to think we want children to be able to think critically. You know, and yeah. all kids should have that. And you talked a little bit about Obama. Obviously, you know, the election of America's first black president enabled children of color to envision their own rise, which is a wonderful thing. But, but mm-hmm. and, 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 and he talked about a race to the top. How well, I mean, let's talk a little bit about Obama's initiative uh, and, and serving communities of color.
2: Right. Well, uh, like I said, uh, his uh, so before him, President um, Clinton... Bill Clinton uh, yeah. had had really advocated for more aggressive charter school expansion oh, and right. opened the door for um, uh, privatized education providers uh, to lobby to to become uh-huh. registered lobbyists um, to have bills passed. So he started like he opened the door a kind of uh, a little bit of a crack. By the time we get to President Obama, um, he his Race to the Top yeah. literally made a lot of these initiatives that businesses had been lobbying for um, and business leaders wanted to see more of. They made it federal policy. So the, the states were supposed to hold teachers accountable for the achievement of their students as registered by how well students did on tests. So whereas um, No Child Left Behind just sort of said we need more testing, uh, President Obama made it federal policy or tried to or aided or <laughs> made a platform for people who wanted to really link the idea of testing, not just for kids to see how they were doing, but to students, a whole other um group and population. His, his the policies, race to the tops, ideas about what had to change, the only things that could change, I mean, as I told you, um, integration is the only systemic thing we've seen. I'm not saying, like, we have other experiments and other things that have worked. It's not just integration, but the biggest mm-hmm. a systemic level, um, when everybody's benefiting, that's the one thing that we have. None of his policies, none, um, rewarded states for increasing levels of integration um, at the state level. It was stuff like, you know, if, if schools after a few years were not testing at the levels that um, – you know, the the government said they should be testing at, then you needed to get rid of the principal or uh, close them or uh, open charter schools. Those were pretty much your only options, like close the school, get new leadership, or just turn to charter schools. Um, these are, again, this goes back through uh, previous administrations. These are the policies that people have been arguing for, that businesses and people who are benefiting and profiting from educational segregation, had been lobbying the government sure. for we want expansion of charter schools, which are privately uh, privately run but publicly financed. Um, right. And so, you know, to say that your only options if you have a failing school that's not testing well is to have more more of these, or just close your school. Period. You know, just close it. Uh, just close it out of hand. Um, really, is a federalization. Um, Of these ideas of how business and and um, education go hand in hand, and then um, one of the things I talk about in the book, our quote from, is an article by a educational reformer named Whitney Tilson. Um, I think it's in the Atlantic or the Nation. I remember it's it's an article in a magazine. Um, And Tilson is talking about how the group of reformers that he works with—they're all hedge fund people. Really deep pockets. You know, they had started an organization called Democrats for Ed Reform specifically because they wanted to break the teachers union. Mm. They all got together and they said, you know, our the the thing that is blocking us, that is making it hard for us to open more charter schools and to expand Teach for America. Whitney Tilson was a founder of uh, Teach for America, along with Wendy copp He was Cops' brother's roommate at Harvard. And so when he graduated for a few years, he worked with Cobb to to get Teach for America on its feet. And then two of the first recruits for Teach for America ended up going off to found the KIPP school. So these folks were all right out of college. They were really good friends, and they hit upon this, you know, we want to – Fix education because the kind of education poor kids are getting is so different from what we're used to. So, so in relation to the Obama administration, one of the things that he talks about is, you know, the three these three folks: the KIPP schools, hedge fund folks, and Teach for America. These people who had all been working together decided okay we need to break the power of the teachers union we need more charter schools and he says when we got Obama elected we started funding him when he was a Senate candidate he and Corey Booker who's now in the Senate mm-hmm. um, started you know was the mayor of Newark um, we, we identified them very early on, and we were big supporters of them. And once they got elected, we knew it was going to benefit our efforts at educational reform.
1: Mm.
2: Um, we knew that our playing field had expanded exponentially. So that just shows you, you know, how mm. those ideas around business and power and education, no one was asking the, the students in the schools right. if they wanted. Right? Right. These are all b- a bunch of rich people and privileged people. Who are deciding for communities uh-huh. what's in their best interest?
0: Uh-huh. Uh huh. Ah, top down. Yeah. Mm, that. Uh, if you don't involve people that are being directly affected, you're not going to have as good a solution. I have found that to be the case I that. Uh, through, through the years. And, you know, talk about breaking unions, you know, it's like, hmm, that sounds like what happened, say, at the turn of the last century when, uh, you know, the business owners wanted to break the unions.
2: Right, right. <laughs>
0: it makes it more profitable. Yes. They
2: are, the Democrats for reform, and a lot of people around education reform are, it's not, it's just the idea of the union. Right. Like they, they, it's, it, it's it enrages them. Yes.
0: Yes, it does. No question about that. Uh, and you talked a little bit about uh, charter schools. I got to ask about that. It, it, it seems that uh, charter schools, when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, we talked about charter schools. And I always had like, mm, something's not quite right about this stuff. It seems to uh, serve to al- to defund already underfunded education, cutting school, if you will. How do they affect Uh, educational quality charter schools do they do they betray the public trust tell us a little bit about charter schools
2: yeah i mean the thing about the 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 charter schools is as an idea um on the surface they're they're not a horrible idea um in practice their history comes out of um the 19th, post-1950, after 1954, when the Supreme Court... I keep running into people who don't know about Brown v. Board, so I know that really? you know, but I'm just going to say yeah. that Brown v. Board... Um, when the Supreme Court decided that separate but equal could not, could no longer be the, the law of the land that it inherently discriminated yes. um, against folks, assuming that the separation um, was, was not in keeping with ideas of American citizenship. Yes. So that schools had to be Uh, integrated. So in the South, you had all of these white families who were just like, absolutely not, we are not sending, like, that's nice that now the Supreme Court has said that we're supposed to with these public schools, but we are not sending um, our white children to school with black people, not going to happen. And they instituted this program of massive resistance that was a majority of the United States Senate, uh, Democrats and Republicans, um, who you know? We're sort of like we are Southern, and we are not going along with this. So we're gonna we're gonna do whatever we can. One of the favorite things was to start to use the tax money um, that people were supposed to be contributing to the school district to the school district as a part of their their property taxes um, to use those to make individual tuition grants. Um, to enable white students to go to all-white private schools, because once they started opening private schools, they called them segregation academies. Um, they they weren't Brown v. Board couldn't touch them, right. but they figured out a way to have them be private and to then come up with their own policies about exclusion and discipline and you know quality like all of it on their own, but to use to be almost one hundred percent funded by taxpayer dollars. Um, in order to do it. So they're sort of like, so your rules don't apply to us, except we're using federal funds to, to use it. And so it took a while for the courts to finally say, cut it out. But that's the same basic um, thinking that has gone into the growth of the charter schools. Right. They're public schools because they're right. funded either with donations from philanthropists or, um, but mostly with tax dollars. Oh, yes. um, but because they're privately run, um, they're, not, they're not held to the same standards around special education and, you know, uh, federal policies about uh, integration and who you can, disabled kids, and, like, who you can keep out. and why. So it's taxpayer money, but it it's, it's, uh, goes into the ideologies and the, the thinking of individual people, and there's very little oversight of them. But in order uh, for the whole thing to work, so now it's not tuition grants. Um, as it was in the the segregation South, but uh, today uh, what it is is the tax dollars, federal and state tax dollars follow the students from traditional public schools and goes to these charter schools. So it's not that there's. It's not that they're, it, they say they they have no intent of underfunding and blah blah blah. blah.
0: Yeah, they say that. So,
2: but it, it does in fact rely on a limited amount of money, and the money is going from one kind of entity to another, um, without the same kind of oversight. And so, so yes, it state financially destabilizes traditional public schools. Right. Um, yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah, and another wonderful idea is uh, vouchers. Free market economist Milton Friedman introduced the idea back in the 1950s in the guise of promoting school choice. Mm-hmm. What was his intention? What have been vouchers' ramifications across uh, the decades since then? And, and it seems to me vouchers, uh, you know, in a way, it, 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 poor people, it's not going to provide enough money. You know, it just uh, it seems to uh, preserve segregation. Uh, mm-hmm. w- tell us about vouchers. I, I think
2: I think in a in a lot of ways, there's a couple there's a couple things about vouchers. Um, one, it, people have this idea that the big barrier to private school not accepting more students is purely money, um, and so it just sort of makes intuitive sense, not based on any research, just intuitive sense that if you give them the money, the private schools will take them. Well, this is the first thing. Private schools get to decide who they want to have. Of course. Um, it is not clear that money, they have admissions committees. They often have more people who want to go to the schools than they have spots, depending on the kind of school and where you are. Yeah. The issue is not that they are trying to make more money, and often the amount of your voucher, depending on the quality of the private school, does not actually cover the tuition. Exactly. So what you end up talking about are, again, another version of kind of charter schools, Uh, that I talked about the segregation academies, you have in states that allow vouchers, like Florida, for example. Um, You have a lot of little so-called private schools that are opening up with the express purpose of admitting students who have these vouchers and come in. They have no other kind of admissions requirements um, and the Florida Sentinel just did a huge multi-part thing about how vouchers are working there, and basically 70% of them are going to religious schools, um, different kinds of religious schools, and the yes. other ones are going to schools that uh, keep having to close down and it keep being identified that the people who have opened them are crooks. Um, so it's yes. just again draining public money from the traditional public school system, supposedly empowering parents to make choices, but structurally, um, it's not the case that people are are going nicely into uh, 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 high performing public schools. Mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, private schools, and there's almost no oversight. There's no one to say mm-hmm. you can only have these tax dollars. If in fact you know people are showing up when they're supposed to show up, if your if if your leadership is being convicted of um, ha- having sex with the students in the school, perhaps you shouldn't get to have the vouchers anymore. Um, but what this report in Florida shows is that because of the lax oversight that has come along with these states that that institute vouchers, they. Uh, they can't say that. They just continue to grow. So it's another form that our our current Secretary of Education is big for.
1: But
2: mm-hmm. she's big for in part because she believes that religious schools need to have a bigger share. Need to we need to find a way to support religious schools and to open tax dollars to religious schools. And vouchers are a way of doing that. And that separation of church and state thing, you know that that should keep that from happening. Um, folks are finding ways to kind of chip away at the edges um, and, and get over that. So um, in Milwaukee, the, the first place, the first city that really tried with vouchers um, in the 90s, uh, what ended up happening after a few years was it discovered that almost 80% of the people who were using the vouchers were actually upper middle class white folks who figured mm-hmm. out how to pay their kids private school tuition or uh, send them to, to Catholic school or religious schools uh, on the taxpayer dollars, it was not helping right. the students who supposedly it was you know designed yeah. to help, which are the least performing and the most vulnerable.
0: And those vouchers are you know way less than a private school would cost. I mean, just just ridiculously less. Oh, much. We much. and and you brought up to a good private
2: school, like one well, you know. True. That, yeah.
0: True. Good point, Betsy DeVos. Mm. <laughs> How will her tenure as Secretary of Education affect the issues that we're talking about, do you think? I, I, it's just, I mean, there's a whole string of, you know, foxes guarding the uh, chicken coops here. I just, what can you say about Betsy DeVos? So, How serious an impact do you think this will be?
2: Well, the thing about Betsy DeVos that's been surprising, given this administration, is how stealthy she's been. You know, like, you're not hearing a whole lot about what she's doing True. or not doing. Or, um, quiet, and, and in an administration where it seems like every breath they take is on the front page <laughs> of the of the mainstream press, you know, it's it's been surprising and been, as a result ultimately far more frightening to me um, because mm. she is – Uh, really ideologically committed to certain forms of privatized education, which she's been involved with for decades in Michigan. And if you look at, uh, so you can really use Michigan um, as a lens for understanding what she thinks should be happening in in, um, public education generally. And in the larger cities like uh, Flint and Detroit, that are overwhelmingly peopled with uh, poor people of color, um, or working class people of color, the the privatized solutions that she's come up with are wreaking havoc. Um, so yes, it, it and so since she she seems to want to take the things that she has been successful with in Michigan public, mm-hmm. we have no reason to believe it won't wreak the same kind of havoc. And yet, she's a lot of Democratic support for these ideas. You know, it's really it's come to the point where charter school expansion, vouchers, privatizing education have become shockingly mainstream. Not amongst yes. actual educators. No. Um, you know, not amongst sort of teachers or uh, people. Really and um, one of the things that's been surprising to me about this book is I was really prepared for quite a bit of backlash um, in black communities where charter school growth is growing. Um, because it seems like, you know, black communities really support charter schools, but uh, increasingly it's becoming clear black communities, poor communities just support some kind of decent, the, the hope of decent education for their kids, some kind.
1: Hmm.
2: Um, and if this is the only thing on the table, fine, uh-huh. but it's not that they necessarily think it's in the best interest of the neighborhood or the community or the nation. Um, they may be able to work out a way that it benefits their individual child. And sometimes that's the only choice that you have.
0: Yeah, it is, which brings up uh, a subject of homeschooling. I I just have a gut reaction, which is not favorable. And as you point out, black families are one of the fastest-growing segments of the homeschooling world. In doing so, uh, are are blacks abandoning the very schools for which their community fought so hard to gain entrance? And do many often not feel like the local schools— I mean. They're doing so badly; they have no choice but to homeschool. Yeah,
2: that's exactly what's happening. It's the schools are doing poorly, and then you know, in this day and age, when we're seeing all of this racial resentment kind of bubble to the fore in oh, yeah. more uh, mm-hmm. more obvious ways, um, the other thing is is the safety uh, of their kids. So either ah, huh. in uh, failing, hmm. troubled urban schools, you know, there's issues with either administrators or these school safety officers who feel like they can grab kids and throw them around. Um, and, uh, school safety officers are a feature only in sort of uh, poorer schools. Uh, wealthy districts don't. They may have a security guard, but a school safety officer really almost has the same powers as a police officer inside the walls of the school. Right. Um, and we've seen a, a number of public incidences and videos where these folks have, you know, grabbed people, choked them, thrown them to the ground, drags them around. Oh, yeah. Uh, So these things are happening, but only in certain kinds of schools. So those are safety issues, not to mention just sort of social dysfunction in some schools, Um, although it's over. It's a fear that people have that all these schools are just teeming with dysfunction. But, Um, you know there is bullying there is there are uh, different kinds of issues and then you have the parents who send in their kids to predominantly white schools where they're being socially isolated and um, not understood and the focus of various kinds of troubling behavior and so black parents are kind of like well what am i supposed to do i can't leave them in the the school that's not educating them right and perhaps someone will grab them and throw them around Um, I can't, if I may or may not be able to send them to a wealthier school, if I live in that district, or, you know, is it even possible for me to get them there? And if they get there, will they really thrive? Or right. I can take the responsibility of educating them myself. It's a choice in the breach. You know, it's a, it's a hmm. choice in the absence of actual choices that work, um, hmm. where you feel like, well, let me try, uh, because no one else seems to be able to do it. So some of the growth in homeschooling, though, goes hand-in-hand with the growth of virtual school products that are aimed at um, they specifically, the virtual schools specifically, target populations like uh, kids in foster homes or kids in juvenile detention or um, kids on Native American mm-hmm. reservations. or you know, mm-hmm. I mean, they really try to go after the children who have the least amount of parental support but all of that gets registered as homeschooling. Right. Um, so there's, there's a, because it is, like you can sit in your home and do it. Um, but mm-hmm. it's not the same thing as we think about when we're sort of like homeschool
0: kids. Oof, wow. Uh, the book is called Cutting School, uh, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. No leeway, Rooks. What, leave us on some positive note. If you were Secretary <laughs> of Education, and we don't have much time left here, but okay. there, there is some degree of hope. What could we do to, to really achieve better education for
2: all? You know, there there are, I would love to see people focus on the good stories, right? There are all kinds of successful teachers, classrooms, and entire schools that have turned themselves around. There's a lovely story about a high school in in dc that's a traditional public high school that didn't get nearly enough attention that that they got together with themselves and said we're going to make sure 100 percent of us go on to college and so the story of the teachers and counselors and students themselves who initiated that effort Uh is truly heartwarming because you only hear it about charter schools there are lots and lots of good stories and and i um i don't have more time but I, I would say that I didn't know them, and I recognize I wasn't hearing about them. Um, I was only hearing about the success with the charter schools. But there are good things happening, and the more attention I think that we can shed and the more help that we can give people who really are overperforming in traditional public schools and saving communities, saving people, saving, you know, sa- saving us, saving democracy at this yes. point, yes. I think that the, the more attention we can pay to that, the better.
0: Oh, agreed, and, and not top-down, but involve people who know what the heck they're doing. Again, the book is Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. Nolivia Rooks, thanks so much for being with us and Keeping Democracy. No, oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard, hoping to pass your fingers right down to the bone the guy behind you won't leave you alone Ring, ring goes the bell The cook cooking the lunchroom's ready to sell
2: You're lucky if you can find a seat You're
0: fortunate if you have candy Back in the classroom, open your books she But the teacher don't know I mean she looks your burden down. Close up your books, get out of your seat. Down the halls and into the street. Up to the corner and round the bend. Ride right to the juke on you go in. Drop the coin right into the slot. You gotta hear something that's really hot. With the one you love, you're making romance. All day long you've been wanting to
1: dance.